I want to invite you to uh, open up your Bibles, the Bible that you brought with you, the Bible that's there in the pew, and if you're new with us and you don't have a Bible or you know someone who needs one, feel free to take that Bible that's there in the pew with you as our gift to you today. Also, if you have a cell phone and you open up the Bible app, we are, you go under events and you will see Grace Lutheran Church pulsating, and if you hit that, you'll see all the announcements that I just gave, but it'll also go right to our scripture this morning. It'll also have our sermon reflection questions. We are in the midst of a sermon series on Daniel, and I want to invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 7, page 619 in your pew Bible. As you're getting there, in the library of the books of the Bible, maybe you noticed as we've been in this sermon series that the book of Daniel is filed under, in the library of the Bible, under the major prophets, right after Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And again, little sidebar, major versus minor prophets does not have to do with their importance, it has to do with the length of the book. Now, noticing that Daniel's in the prophet section, major or minor, he's in the major section, you might find that a little odd at this point because up to now, in the first six chapters, we've really only encountered historical narrative, meaning we've only really encountered stories of how God acted through the life of Daniel. There's not been much prophecy. Well, chapter 7 marks a turning point for us, a shift into prophecy as we move from hearing stories to encountering visions. And this shift in genre, in the style of writing, is known as apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic comes from a Greek word that means revelation, or a shifting, a lifting of the veil. And if you suddenly think of the book of Revelation, that's right, that's why it's called the apocalypse. It's the revelation of God. Now, Revelation, you'll, if you actually were to go and look at it, and as we get into Daniel's, not only chapter 7, but all the way to the end, to chapter 12, they have very similar style of writing because they're both apocalyptic literature. And what you're going to find this morning is this chapter, and from here on in Daniel, does not operate in what we would call a linear narrative. Because apocalyptic writing is dominated by visual images that paint these dynamic pictures of current and future temporal earthly events that happen in the midst of this overlay of behind-the-scenes heavenly realities that we do not perceive. So if you if you're just caught what I just said, sort of this, this interposing of earthly and spiritual realities are kind of revealed, lifted back for us, it starts to get complicated. When we get into Daniel 7, you're going to see Daniel's going to show us one picture, then he's going to interrupt it with another picture as it breaks in, and then he's going to interrupt that with another picture as it breaks in and so forth, and it's going to feel like almost watching a movie. And if you've never read anything like Daniel 7 through 12 or the book of Revelation, this kind of literature, apocalyptic literature, is fraught with difficulty and confusion when it comes to interpretation. And it's fraught with difficulty and confusion for two main reasons, which I think are pretty much common sense. First, Daniel, or the Apostle John in Revelation, they're both trying to describe what they're seeing, right? They're trying to describe what they're seeing, but much of what they're seeing is beyond their comprehension. So right there, we don't have the actual vision. We're not seeing it firsthand. We're getting secondhand what Daniel and John are trying to describe that they see. And in the midst of the picture that they paint as they describe what they see, as with any picture, and this is the second reason why it gets complicated, with any picture, what one person sees isn't always the same. So as we go forward from this point in, not just today, but through the rest of the book of Daniel, let me caution us to avoid two extremes. 
two extremes that are very popular and rampant in the church. First, we must avoid the temptation to literally interpret every image and number to predict names, dates, and times related to future events. The Bible is clear. The Lord's purpose in pulling back the veil is not for us to get fixated on specific and detailed facts about future history. And I don't have time here, but if you want to debate this with me after the service, I can point you to those scriptures where God makes it very clear that's not the point. But on the other hand, so that's one extreme, but on the other hand, we must not treat the descriptions and details that we see, that we are given by Daniel, as purely poetic, as having no grounding in actual happenings in our world and in our time. Again, God assures us that what we are shown, even though at times it blows our minds or makes us scratch our heads, God assures us what we are shown through such visions and writings is more than just fanciful dreaming or wishful imagining. So how do we enter into this as we're about to start reading from Daniel chapter 7? I hope this helps. Might make it worse. Who knows? What you're seeing, what we're going to see together are broad strokes Broad strokes painted, grounded in the reality of the awful conflict that underlies our history as humanity, our life apart from God. But we're also going to see in these broad strokes the mystery of the Lord's purposes to save us from ourselves and bring us home. So let's read Daniel chapter 7. Let's dive in. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We're going to read up till verse, uh, right before verse 15. So let's hear Daniel writes, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there was before me a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh." After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. On its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the other beasts. It had ten horns. And while I was thinking about the horns, there was before me another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was as white as wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, 
And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> so, how many of you right now are scratching your heads? Huh? Okay. So let's, I'm going to try to take us through this. It's almost like looking at, again, art, a picture. And in that, I'm going to try to help us to see some meaning as well as some application. Chapter 7, as we see, is split into an earthly and a heavenly scene. We get to see what man is doing on earth, and then we get to see what God is doing in heaven. Like I told you, this inter interposing of earthly and spiritual realities. Now, one of the dominant features of apocalyptic literature is the use of metaphor. And if you don't remember what metaphor is from when you took English, metaphor teaches by means of analogy. Teaching us about obscure and difficult things, remember sometimes things we can't comprehend or understand, as Daniel's trying to describe what he's seeing, teaching us about obscure and difficult things by referring to things that we know. And our first picture in this chapter, verses 1 through 8, is a picture of a turbulent sea. You can almost picture it in your mind. A rough, it's rough with white caps, huge waves crashing, and we're told it's stirred up by the four winds of heaven. And as we look at this image, we can go all the way back to the first chapters of Genesis, or we can go to the book of Psalms and read how the Bible uses the image of the sea again and again as a picture of upheaval and chaos. And out of this chaos, Daniel sees four beasts arising. And at first glance, you probably, I hope you caught this, these four beasts seem familiar. They seem familiar. He'll say, well, it's like a lion, or it's like a bear or it's like a leopard, but upon closer inspection, they look unlike any animal we've ever seen, right? I mean, when's anyone seen a lion with eagle's wings? And later, when this vision is interpreted, we didn't keep reading, but later when Daniel says, and if you were scratching your head, don't worry, Daniel was too. Later, when Daniel is asking, what does this mean? He's told these four beasts represent four kings with their four kingdoms. Now, here we go, because various interpretations abound as to the identity of these four kingdoms. But I'm going to say to you, the characteristics are so vague and generalized, specific associations can be hard to pin down. We're going to get stuck in the weeds if we go down this trail. What I'm going to offer us is a straightforward interpretation we have to interpret on these beasts. And what I want to say is that I think two things are very clear that we can kind of hold on to here. Two things. First, Daniel's vision here in chapter 7, if you've been with us in this series or you've studied Daniel before, Daniel's vision appears similar to Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in chapter 2. And on the screen behind me is a picture of that vision, or that dream of the statue with the different types of metals going all the way down. Four metals, four beasts. There's some similarity here, some play. In addition, I think it makes sense, given that God is trying to reveal something to Daniel, that the Lord would unfold this vision with what Daniel is familiar with and then move to maybe what he wouldn't recognize, he couldn't recognize. So given this, what we can say, I think pretty definitively, is the first beast, the lion with eagle's wings, represents Babylon, the empire, that, the kingdom that Daniel knows. And why I will further affirm this is the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel describe Babylon as a lion and as an eagle. 
They actually use it to describe specifically Nebuchadnezzar. And we know that when Daniel is actually living in Babylon, he's reading Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So this makes sense. This would make sense to Daniel. This is Babylon. Now from here, things become less certain. Many will seek to understand the historical significance of these four beasts in light, as I said, of the four metals, and will say, well, the rest is obvious. The rest of the beasts are the great empires of biblical time. So we've got Persia, we've got Greece, and we've got Rome, two, three, and four. I'm going to say to you that this can be contested, and it is. It's not that simple. And when you get to the image, did you catch this? Because all of a sudden you're like, okay, a beast kind of like a lion, kind of like a leopard. But did you all of a sudden, did you, did you start, start to feel your head start to hurt when all of a sudden this little horn popped up that had eyes? You're like, what the heck is that, right? Because all of a sudden when the little horn pops up and begins to do its thing, right? A horn starts running off at the mouth and it's boasting. Things get even more muddled. So as a way through debating and speculating about who is that, what time period is that, I want to suggest that the broader point here is what Daniel saw and was describing was not so much about a succession of empires, but rather Daniel was given a panoramic vision of humanity's struggle with empire. Humanity's struggle with empire. And I'm not saying that this isn't grounded in reality, but I'm saying the larger point is that not for us to get fixated on who, but to get fixated on the what. These beasts represent across human history the attempts of world powers to set up lasting, beneficent, and almighty rule on earth, but being in absolute contrast to the kingdom of God, they all bring nothing but chaos Depravity, greed, and brutality. You might have noticed, and if you don't, you can open up your Bibles and look at it. All of the kingdoms of the world, all of these beasts have the same distinguishing marks. First, these empires are beastly, right? They're savage. They're all bent on violence and destruction. Second, these beasts, these empires are hungry. They're hungry for power and for control. They eat their fill of flesh and blood, but they're never satisfied. And in fact, and this is the third commonality between them, they devour one another, right? There is no loyalty among the beasts, no lasting peace, just conquest and conquest. And finally, what you'll notice is their reign of terror gets worse as time goes on. First, it's a lion with wings. Then it's a bear with bones in its mouth. Then it's a leopard with wings. And then, did you catch this? There is this monstrous beast that Daniel can barely describe. He doesn't liken it to anything else. He simply says it has iron teeth. It crushes and consumes its victims. It's so different from the other beasts, Daniel doesn't even dare give it an animal name. So where are we? At the start of Daniel's vision, we are given, I think, an honest and hard look at our past, at our present, and at our future. Our life, our world opposed to God. And the first takeaway from Daniel chapter 7 that I want to offer you this morning, the first takeaway from this vision, the first part of this vision, is that we need to pay attention. We need to pay attention. We may not fully understand the specific identity of these four beasts, and we'll get distracted if that's what we argue about, because we may not understand the identity of these four specific beasts, the ten horns, the little horn, but what we can say for certain is we don't want to be allied or aligned with any of them. As the people of God, 
When I say pay attention, we must never be naive about the truth of their existence. We dare not turn a blind eye as we live and breathe in this world of ours to the possibility, the reality, and the durability of evil in this fallen world. And to make this even more closer to home, and relevance even still today, we must never confuse the kingdom of the state with the kingdom of God. And we should be mindful and pay attention to the danger and the harm of confusing the two. We live in very desperate times right now, and man, there is a lot of talk, and there is a lot of stress, and there's a lot of praying, and a lot of worrying, and a lot of hand-wringing going on. And I've said it before, and I'm going to say it to you again. When I say we must not confuse the kingdom of the state with the kingdom of God, beloved, we are never to expect to find our salvation or our redemption in politics. We are never to expect to find our salvation or our redemption in politics. And I need you to hear me because there's a lot of people in the church that ain't getting the message. Politics will not save us. Politics will not redeem us as a people. Because here's the thing, and I'm, I'm not trying to trample on our own government, but even the designs of the best form of government, even the designs of the best form of government, and I believe we have the best form of government that the world has seen, but even the designs of the best form of government may be altruistic, even though that may be true, all governments are still designed and occupied by broken and sinful people. We've been taught, when I tell you, be careful, pay attention, don't confuse the kingdom of the state with the kingdom of God. We've been taught world history is dominated by the struggle between capitalism and communism or between democracy and dictatorship, dictatorships. But here in Daniel, our eyes are open to a deeper truth. Our perspective is broadened to perceive that, in fact, world history is actually dominated by the struggle between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. Again, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me here. I'm not saying all governments, we get rid of government, government's bad. No, don't misunderstand me here. As a people, we need civil government. Pointing back to the scriptures, scriptures like Romans chapter 13 reinforce the necessity of civil government as an instrument in the hands of God for the development of humanity and for the restraint of evil. We need government. However, no civil government, no matter how promising, eclipses the need and eclipses our dependence upon the sovereignty of God. Every government, like all the people which it serves, once again is flawed. Every government is flawed. Every government is imperfect in its justice. Every government is liable to corruption. This ought not to surprise us. And my friends... Whenever any nation or government presumes to rival, replace, or to be God, that nation, that government becomes an agent of idolatry, an empire of evil that will ultimately be opposed to everything good, noble, and true. And this is what we're seeing in a panoramic vision. And we can recognize, based upon what Daniel sees here, we can recognize, and when I say pay attention, this shift in the state, any state, any government, we can recognize this shift through the universal characteristics that we see here. 
the universal characteristics of empire presented in Daniel's vision. We recognize a disturbing shift in in the state when the state hungers to expand its power without boundaries. We recognize empire rising when the state uses beastly force to devour all opposition. And we recognize the rise of empire when the repeated outcome of the state is not justice, mercy, and peace, but evil, chaos, and death. Now, one other way we can remain vigilant in, in, in paying attention and remembering the, the distinction between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God, the state, and if you will, the church, the one way we can remain vigilant and properly aligned as followers of Jesus is to remember First, for us to remember and for us to proclaim the kingdom of God, unlike the empires of the world, do not depend, the kingdom of God does not depend on violence or force. The kingdom of God has no iron teeth or bronze claws. The kingdom of God has a mouth from which emerges not proud words or boasts, but from which emerge the beautiful words and promises of the gospel. My friends, the love, grace, and truth of the word of God is the only sword we wield. The inspiration, influence, and transforming work of the Spirit is the only power we rely upon. So we begin by being reminded to pay attention. But then we move to verses 9 through 14, and the picture changes, as I told you it would. A picture changes as we move from the earth over into the throne room of heaven. Daniel's vision of the throne room of heaven. And over and against the apparent brutality and evident depravity of the kingdoms of this world were suddenly opened up to a greater reality. The might and righteousness of God. Ask yourselves for a second, what is the goal of every earthly kingdom? I mean, not assuming the worst, but the goal of any kingdom is, any earthly kingdom is to endure, to last, right? We expect to endure, to last, I, say, I point this out to you because notice in Daniel's vision what the Lord is called. Did you catch it? What's the Lord called? The Ancient of Days. You catch this, right? The kingdoms of man come and go, but the Ancient of Days remains on the throne. He is seated. He reigns. Heavenly calm in this second picture is contrasted with the earthly chaos. And in fact, if we go back to that first picture for a moment, Daniel's, that Daniel sees, we might, we might notice something that we missed the first time around. In verse 2, it's described that the winds of heaven are the dominant, in dominant position over the sea. Do you get that? In the midst of the chaos, God is still sovereign and unquestionably in control. As Daniel continues to see this picture of, what's, of the Lord, the Ancient of Days, he's described as white as snow, and this indicates the Lord's purity and righteousness. The whitest snow, the purity and righteousness in contrast with the wickedness and corruptibility of humanity that we just saw. Fire is also present, and fire is this symbol of purification, of burning away impurities. It's this idea of this ancient of days, this God writes all that is wrong in this world. And as we begin to see the fire, as the, the, the camera angle almost pulls back on this vision that Daniel has, gradually we begin to see that this is more than a throne room, it's a courtroom. Did you catch the implication of the books are open? The books of account are open. God is not just in control in this vision. God judges the nations. 
And as we take this in with verse 13, our eyes are drawn to, from the Ancient of Days, the authority and power of the Ancient of Days, to someone called the Son of Man. This picture of the Son of Man riding on the clouds. Now, the Son of Man is interesting. In the Old Testament, the Son of Man, the expression Son of Man, is used most frequently in reference to men. People who are just human, like you and me. But all of a sudden in the Psalms, and here in Daniel, and it'll start to pick up, the expression son of man begins to take on a more technical meaning. Referring not just to a human being, but referring to the Messiah. The one who will come, who will sit on the throne of his father David to rule over humanity forever. That's the Old Testament evolution of this, this term, this image, son of man. But the New Testament commentary on the son of man comes from Jesus himself. It's, it's if you've, this is gonna, if you've never caught this, this is going to be awesome. In the Gospels, maybe you've missed this, maybe you haven't understood it before, now Daniel helps you to see something. In the Gospels, Jesus begins to not only identify himself as the promised Son of Man, he also explains what all that involves, what being the Son of Man involves. And I'm just going to give you one, a couple of Gospel references from Ma- just from Matthew, okay? In Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says, the Son of Man has power to forgive sins and to heal. In Matthew chapter 12, he'll go on to say, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In Matthew 13, he will say, the Son of Man will send forth his angels to weed out everything that causes sin, all that do evil. And you could go on and on through Matthew, and it's going to blow your mind now, where Jesus keeps saying, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, and he's pointing to himself. And it all leads to that moment in Matthew chapter 26. And maybe when we get around Holy Week, Good Friday, you've always been confused when we read this part of the story exactly what's going on. Remember, Jesus is before the high priests. They try to have people who will come and give testimony against him, and people are lying. They have, they have no basis to bring charges against him. But the decisive moment where they tear their clothes and they say, that's it, he's got to be put to death, is this moment in Matthew chapter 26 when the chief priest says, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus answers, yes by quoting right back here in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He quotes this exact description of the Son of Man and then says, I am the Son of Man. And they say, that's it. He's got to go. Because if you missed it at any other point in the gospel, in that decisive moment, Jesus definitively claims to be the one Daniel had seen. The one, as it's described here in this vision, into whose hands the governments of the world would be given. The one who would be served and worshipped by all nations and all people. Whose reign would be universal and eternal. Jesus is declaring in that moment, I am the king. What's interesting to me about Daniel is lots of people when they read Daniel, especially Daniel chapter 7, this part, they think that this talk about the Son of Man is a picture of Christ's second coming. And I'm here to tell you, it's not. This is a picture of the first time that Christ comes. This is a picture, in fact, of Jesus' ascension after he rose victorious from the grave. Think about it. What do we understand the cross to be about? The cross, on the cross, Jesus bears the judgment for the sins of the world. That the books of account that are open, the judgment that is described here, on the cross, Jesus bears the judgment for the sins of the world. And it's not just my interpretation of this. Paul in Colossians 2 describes what happens in the cross this way. Paul in Colossians 2 writes, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, the books of account, right? This, 
he set aside, Jesus, this Jesus set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul says Jesus conquered the God-belittling beast in here as well as the God-defying empires that arise from the chaos of our lives out there. And Jesus did it through the cross. Jesus defeats the violence we trade in through embracing the death we propagate and we deserve by coming out the other side through the resurrection. And this is a part in the church that we've lost in our tradition. We remember the cross and we remember the resurrection. Thank God we still say it in the Apostles' Creed, but we don't commemorate the day that happens 40 days later. What happens 40 days later after Jesus is resurrected? Do you remember? He ascends into heaven and makes a big deal about it too. He leaves his disciples and says, I gotta go. And we see him not coming down from the Father, but aligning with this vision going up to him. Ascending to heaven as we declared in the creed to sit at the right hand of the Father, granted dominion over all creation and an everlasting kingdom. This is so important you see this because guys, in my experience, some people Stay away from Daniel's, Daniel chapter 7 through 12 or just the book of Revelation as a whole because they perceive apocalyptic literature as a reason for fear and depression. And it's not surprising since pretty much every horror movie that gets made now is all about Revelation. The apocalypse. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, these were never, writings were never given to us to make us afraid or to make us depressed. The Lord pulls back the veil for us. Remember, that's what apocalypse means. The Lord pulls back the veil for us, and yes, so we can see the monster that's under the bed. There's a monster under the bed. But the practical application of pictures like these shown to Daniel is not just to be attentive, but it's intended to encourage us. So the second application is be encouraged. Be encouraged. Are there monsters under the bed that produce terror in your heart? We're almost near Halloween. Are there monsters under your bed? that produce terror in your heart. Maybe your fears, like I mentioned earlier, are reflected to the future of our country. And there are some people out there that are really freaking out, that are really afraid. This is it, man. This is it. Are your fears related to the future of our country? Or maybe your fears are related to the future of your children. What kind of world are they growing up in? What kind of world is it gonna be? Or maybe you're just struggling and so many of us are. Maybe you're just struggling to deal with all the chaos, right? All the heartache, the prejudice, the bigotry, the hate that you see between people. Maybe even people you know, your family, your friends, your neighbors. I've, I've heard about it and I've seen, had more people just talk about how they find themselves like unable to talk to people they know. They've unfriended them on Facebook or like, oh, they just can't have a conversation. And, and, and maybe that's that monster under the bed for you. We all have circumstances in our lives, guys. We all do. We all have circumstances in our lives that feel like they will overwhelm us. We all do. Consider Daniel. Consider Daniel. We're told that this vision, this first vision, occurs in the first year of Belshazzar. And if, to give you some context, Daniel's well into his 80s at this point, okay? He's in the twilight of his career. So just kind of to see where he's at in his life. He's at the twilight of his career, and he's been waiting and hoping for the end of the captivity of his people. And then along comes Belshazzar, 
a king who we learned back in chapter 5 in Daniel had marginalized God's people and had brought Babylon into a state of steady decline. So can you imagine in this moment, in the first year of Belshazzar's reign, the internal conflict for Daniel? Can you imagine it? On the one hand, Daniel has been driven well into his 80s. He's been driven by the confidence that everything that's been happening in his life, serving on the public scene, has been contributing to the great plan of God to redeem his people from captivity and to reestablish them in the land of Israel. However, being forgotten, and he's been forgotten in his isolation under the rule of this man, whom I suggest Daniel already recognizes is going to be a disaster for Babylon, Daniel can't help but say, you know, this doesn't seem like the beginning of a brand new start. This seems like the rise of another evil empire to dominate my people. And isn't it interesting? In this context, the Lord in his grace comes to comfort and reassure Daniel, who is understandably wondering, like many of us do, what in the world is happening? What in the world is happening? Daniel, a man who had always been able to keep his eyes on the big picture, that was his gift, right? He was always able to keep his eyes on the big picture, is now being challenged and encouraged to consider a bigger picture than he has ever contemplated before. God is showing Daniel the nature of the kingdom he's going to establish. Far beyond simply returning the people of Israel to their own homeland, God has plans for a kingdom that will extend around and beyond the known world. My friends, Daniel's vision is our reassurance and comfort too in the midst of our own uncertainty and confusion. If we sat down, and many of us have, and we dwell upon all that's wrong in the world, all that's wrong in our lives, it can overwhelm us. And some of us here today are frankly overwhelmed. But God gives us his word on paper, and in Jesus Christ in the flesh, God gives us his word to keep us going. One of the purposes of scripture, in particular apocalyptic writing like this, is to challenge and encourage us to face and interpret larger and larger realities. Things are dark. There's no getting around that. Things are dark right now, man. Evil is real. I don't think we can debate that. Evil is real. But evil will not get the last word. Death is not the end. Justice Justice, which so many cry out for, will be done because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and is alive forevermore. We don't have to wait for Christ's second coming. And I'm not belittling that. But we don't have to wait for Christ's second coming to know who will be victorious. That dominion already belongs to Jesus. My friends, our gaze has to penetrate beyond history into the throne room of God because the only thing that can steal the mind and steady the heart to face all this chaos and confusion around us is the steady vision of the one to whom has been given all power on earth and in heaven. Our hope in life does not center on the focal points of world power. It centers upon Christ Christ who is beyond, who is under, who is behind all we can see. Christ who is standing for us and with us and bringing men and women as it's described here. Men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation into his reign of grace, truth, and love. Be encouraged. And that brings us to the close of the chapter. To Daniel's response to all this, which we didn't read. But 
It's kind of recapping stuff we've already talked about, but one of the main things that I want you to notice that we didn't, we didn't read is that Daniel gets this vision, his heart's lifted to a place, this beautiful picture. Daniel's heart's lifted to a place where, did you catch this? Tens of thousands upon tens of thousands. That's a huge number. Tens of thousands upon tens of thousands are worshiping God Almighty. Daniel's heart is lifted to see that, and we're told at the end, he's deeply disturbed and troubled. Does that strike you as odd? Like, he just saw this incredible vision and he's deeply disturbed and troubled. Why? I'll tell you why I think he's disturbed. Because I read Daniel, and this is the third application, is Daniel's engaged. I think Daniel's disturbed and I think he's troubled because I think Daniel, in the midst of this picture, is burdened with the lives of the generations to come. Daniel doesn't know these people he sees in his vision, not yet. Daniel could have, in seeing this, gone, well, that was a weird dream. Whew, crazy, I'm not drinking that again. Oh, man. You know, he could have remained aloof, just focused on his present circumstances and not concerned himself with matters too big and too far out of his pay grade. And yet, what we're told is Daniel's heart is broken over people he would never know in this life. He sees the kind of suffering they, and by the way, the they is us, he sees the kind of suffering we're going to experience and he's moved by it. Now I know in the last line of this chapter, for those of you who are very astute readers, you'll go, but Daniel kept it to himself. That's what it says at the end of the chapter. Yeah, he kept it to himself for the moment, but obviously he didn't because we have it, right? I mean, if Daniel was like, okay, I'm never telling anyone about this. I'm just going to keep this to myself. We would have nothing to talk about here. He keeps it to himself until I believe led by the Spirit, he writes it down. For us. Daniel engages, my friends. Daniel doesn't turn his eyes away, and our last application is to be engaged. Daniel doesn't turn his eyes away, and neither can we. Scripture doesn't allow us to retreat into the passivity of our lives. Jesus is clear about this, and I've been, I, you know, sometimes in a sermon you're like waiting to get to a certain part that you're almost, maybe I've gone too fast because I've been waiting to get to this part. <laughs> I'm so excited. I told you, Daniel, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And I told you that what we're seeing here is a picture of Jesus ascending into heaven. Go back with me to that pivotal moment in Matthew chapter 26. Because one thing we forgot to talk about, and it's really important, is right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he gives his, his disciples some final instructions, doesn't he? We call it the Great Commission. In that moment, Matthew chapter 28 Jesus claims, and hear this, this is exactly what he says. Jesus claims all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Boom, son of man. And then before he ascends, he turns and gives that authority to his disciples. And just, this is the part that's like awesome. The great commission that Jesus gives us there in Matthew 28. Notice how beautifully it dovetails with verse 27 here in Daniel chapter 7. If you have your Bible open, read it. If not, I'm going to read it to you. Think about the great commission in light of what Daniel describes in verse 27. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. Did you get that? My friends, as followers of Jesus, we are the holy people of the Most High. As followers of Jesus, we are the holy people of the Most High. We have been commissioned to share in his dominion. To, we have been given access to him as king. And through prayer and intercession and acts of service, 
through what we say and what we do in his name, we, for the benefit of our brothers and sisters, bring our fellow children of God into the kingdom. Being attentive, being encouraged, always leads to being engaged. And engagement means bearing the cross of the pain and suffering of this world. One of the greatest temptations right now is just to not pay attention anymore. And it's to be angry and depressed. But if you pay attention and you are encouraged, you will engage the pain of suffering in this world rather than turn your back on it. Engagement means not shrinking back and being worn out by the evil around us, but instead, through the truth of God's word and the power of God's spirit, standing against hatred, prejudice, and violence. If the church, the followers of Jesus, do not speak up, do not take a stand against hatred, prejudice, and violence, no one else will. We have been given dominion. We have been given authority. We are ambassadors for Christ. And my friends, I know. I'm, I, it takes effort to care. It takes effort to care. It takes effort to become informed. It's easier to just be comfortably numb. It takes effort to be our brother and sister's keeper. It is far easier to just write people off. It takes effort to stand in solidarity with all our brethren who suffer in persecution and oppression. But my friends, that's what engagement, that's what being a follower of Christ is. Engagement means living productive and influential lives. It means seeking to represent the goodness of God through the ministry of our words and deeds. Is that what your life's about? In all the other stuff that's important to you, do you understand the fundamental reason you are here, how you glorify God, how you are productive and influential, is representing the goodness of God through the ministry of your words and your deeds. It is, as we talked about this past Wednesday, Wednesday night, being, as Jesus calls us, salt and light. Salt, preservers of the truth of the gospel, bringing pres preservation into the decontamination of this world and being light, shining reflections of the love and forgiveness of the kingdom of God in the midst of this ever-present darkness. If you sit here and you say, how can I engage? I'm gonna come, just come right back to something I said last week, but I'll break it a little bit bigger. Last week, I encouraged us to think about how our lives would shift if our lives were more centered around prayer. Engagement begins with prayer. In the midst of centering your life in God's heart, as we talked about last week, out of being centered in God's heart, will you allow, will you ask God, will you pray for God's heart for your neighbor? Will you pray for God's heart for your enemy? Will you pray for God's heart for the nations? This has been something that been, God's been pressing upon my heart, and, and at times it's easy to get overwhelmed, and I want to just point you to, it's a tool one thing that might be helpful to you that's been really helpful to me, I, I, I was aware of it many, many years ago and I can, kind of came back into my periphery. There's a great ministry called Operation World. And Operation World tries to provide detailed information about all the nations of the world, their people groups, their, you know, their religious affiliation, and specific prayer needs that are updated on a regular basis. Operation World, you can Google it, has a website. They have a daily email. You'll get every day that provides a succinct summary of one country as well as the challenges and opportunities the church faces in that country so that you can be informed in your praying. Can you just engage at that level to pray for the nations? Daniel's vision, and we're just getting started. <laughs> Daniel's vision, while open to a variety of interpretations, 
Daniel's visions are transhistorical. And what I mean is the fulfillment of these visions that Daniel sees are not a one-time event, but a series of concentric circles of fulfillment in our history, a series of concentric circles that are grounded in the pain and suffering of this broken world we know all too well. And yet, in the midst of these concentric circles, what continues to be unveiled for us is that the events of history, our history, are not isolated from realities beyond history. We see that the kingdom of God is among us. We see the dawn of eternity is rising. We see that through the cross and the resurrection, the decisive moment, the promise and hope of God's gracious and saving intervention has come. And so my friends, we may exist in two kingdoms. We may exist in two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. We may exist in two kingdoms, but let us choose to live for one kingdom the only one that is greater, the only one that ultimately matters. And we live in that one kingdom by being attentive, by being encouraged, and by being engaged with the reign of Christ, which endures, and which will one day at last make all things new. Amen.